Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project... Five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails remastered This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the War of the Spanish Succession, which originally aired as one episode on the 27th of June 2012. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. My name is Zach. Okay, so last time we delved into a critical war in the middle of the 18th century, but... This time we go back a bit to look at a war which occurred in Europe and other parts of the world, and which set the tone, really, for the rest of that century's many conflicts. You'll be amazed at just how often Europe is at war during these years. To place it in context, four years after this war, another war called the War of the Quadruple Alliance will break out in 1719. Four years before the War of the Spanish Succession broke out, The War of the Grand Alliance, also known as the Nine Years' War, or the War of the League of Augsburg, came to an end. The War of the Spanish Succession, quite a famous war in its own right, is therefore sandwiched between two other wars, which when diplomacy fails may or may not cover in the near future. Back to the present, though, and Louis XIV's last great war. In When Diplomacy Fails, we have seen Louis at his worst and at his best, but... It was this war which really ignited my interest and passion in his world five years ago. Before I really knew who Louis XIV was, I 
always knew the war of the Spanish succession. It was only once I looked into it that I realised how much of a significant monarch Louis XIV was and how much of an impact he had on Europe, not even withstanding the war of the Spanish succession. All the things that went along with this war and the experiences of all the countries that led them to make war on Louis during the course of the early 18th century and the fact that everyone seemed so initially reluctant but then realised that they kind of had to to stop Louis grabbing the throne of Spain, it all makes for fascinating listening. And even while looking at it, I knew that Louis XIV, five years ago, was a character I'd like to look into in more detail someday. Which, of course, I'm doing at the moment, or at least was doing before all these five-year celebrations kicked in. Anyway, so thanks for listening, guys. And please remember, if you want to support the podcast, I really won't stop you. In fact, I'd be very happy. All you have to do is be fit. Support by spreading word of mouth. Tell me you're enjoying it firsthand. I love those kinds of emails or messages. Spread the word that When Diplomacy Fails is releasing at least one episode every single day for five weeks. If people don't want to come along to see what that's all about, if people don't think I'm crazy and want to just see if I really am sane after all, then hey, you've done all you can at least. I'd love to just get this out there as much as possible. The great thing about being so active online and and having a podcast feed which is essentially on fire for five weeks is that odds are a good bit of traffic will be driven towards it. You can help this traffic driving. I'm sure there's a proper word for that, but you can help. Just tell people about the podcast, tell them about me, and you'll be making your way towards being a good history friend. Of course, if you want to do a little bit extra, at the time of recording this, I'm preparing for the wedding. Sorry to break the fourth wall, but no, I did not record all of this at the start of May. I've been recording and doing this since just after Christmas, really. And I kept it a secret from all of you. It was a really fun time and I've obviously been really excited to share it with you all. But if you want to thank me for me thanking you for sticking with us for five years and add to that roundabout chain of thanks, then hey, be a monthly history friend and give a small amount to When Diplomacy Fails every month. Failing that, if you'd like to pre-order the new book, order the, well, I suppose it's not really old, but order the book, Matter of Honor by Zach Twomley, at all good bookstores and, of course, on Amazon, or buy a t-shirt. If you want to find either of these things, guys, When Diplomacy Fails has its own website, wdfpodcast.com. Check that out. Okay, so I think it's justified giving you this tiny little bit of plugging, but we're ready to get into it now. I thought it was only fitting that I redo this episode for the remaster, And you'll be happy to know that the War of the Spanish Succession will here contain four glorious parts. In other words, it's basically twice as long as it used to be. God help us all. As the beginning of my fascinations with the Sun King started here at the War of the Spanish Succession, I figured it only makes sense that I made this podcast revolve around him, so to speak. So, I hope you'll enjoy this new take as I take you to the year 1697. There is little that can withstand a man who can conquer himself. It was a feeble and sick king of Spain that signed the Treaty of Rizic on the 30th of September, 1697. King Don Carlos II of Spain, also known as Charles II of Spain, represented but one of the many nations involved in the struggle against France in the previous war. And now that the war was over, the hope that Europe could settle down into a much-needed peace was ever-present among those that had fought. Carlos and many other monarchs knew better, though. 
as a fixture of the European scene for the last few decades. Carlos's status as a king of Spain that defied the odds and expectations of his contemporaries, including Louis XIV, seems impressive, but the reality was far bleaker. Carlos was the horrifically inbred result of Habsburg intermarrying over the centuries, culminating the marriage of Carlos's father, Philip IV, to his niece, and after numerous stillborn babies and fragile children, they didn't get the hint, and Carlos emerged as the leader of the once mighty Habsburg Spain. As if representing the declining Spanish Empire in constitution as well as fortune, Carlos was too deformed to attend any kind of education, and he was barely able to speak, let alone eat. To the heads of Europe, though, the question was not so much Carlos's gene pool, but what would happen when the sterile king died? As the last of his direct male line, Carlos had a job to do, an ancient and traditional job, the provision of successors, of heirs to the Spanish Habsburg line. But what would happen when he died if he hadn't named a successor? Well, if you're paying attention to the name of this war, you'll probably see where this all ends up going. As a victim of frequent illness, Carlos had already surprised Europe numerous times over by living through a series of debilitating conditions by his late thirties. He must have known that his fragile body would not withstand much more strife, but he also knew that his death would cause a power vacuum in Europe, as all powers fought to put forward their own claimants to Spain's crown. In a Europe not far removed from a long war, the aim was to handle a transition of power to another indirect or cadet branch of the Habsburgs without providing grounds for another conflict. Thus, Carlos and his advisors would have to look for a way to preserve peace while also finding a way to secure the distinguished family name in Spain. To achieve such an end, Carlos's advisors would have looked at the countries in Europe who could reasonably claim the Spanish throne. His half-sister, Maria Teresa, married to Louis XIV, was one such option for Spanish succession, though she had herself repudiated all claims on the throne of Spain as a prerequisite for marrying her present husband in 1660. Nonetheless, Maria Theresa's marriage to her cousin, Louis XIV, had been a fruitful one, and while she had since passed on, Louis remained the powerhouse at the helm of France, despite the series of great wars, two in total, and a few smaller ones as well, which had brought their own cocktail of victory and defeat. Passing the line to Louis and Maria Theresa's heirs would certainly ensure a strong family, and it would definitely have the backing of Louis himself. The French Bourbon family line was vested with Habsburg blood, and had been since Louis XIV's mother, Anne of Austria, married Louis XIII decades before. Louis could thus launch a strong campaign in favour of his heirs, perhaps one of the strongest campaigns in Europe, since he was busy enough ruling France it meant that he wouldn't be ruling Spain at the same time. Louis XIV's son, Louis XV, or Le Grand Dauphin as he was also known, was therefore a possible candidate for the throne of Spain. As the firstborn son of Louis XIV, the Dauphin was meant to be the successor to the French crown, but such was the healthy state of Bourbon inheritance that additional descendants of Louis XIV could be expected to take the helm if Louis XV didn't want to remain in France. Failing that, perhaps it could be swapped around. Maybe Louis XV would remain king of France and one of Louis's grandsons, or indeed great-grandsons, who were still in their infancy, could be placed on the throne of Spain. By 1697, Louis XIV could boast a son and numerous grandsons, not to mention the leagues of illegitimate children that Louis had with his mistresses, many of whom he would later legitimise. 
The power and glory of France was epitomised in the fruitfulness and plenty of its royal family, which formed a stark and, no doubt to Carlo's painful contrast to the decline of Spain in that country's ailing line. With Louis XIV's son less willing to accept the throne of Spain, and more interested in directly inheriting France from his father, fair enough, Carlos still had plenty of options, as Louis XIV could boast three grandsons of good health, and in fact it would be one of these grandsons, the second, called Philip, who would inherit the Spanish throne as Philip V. By giving the game away early, this episode will serve as a kind of reverse murder mystery, as we examine how Europe ripped itself apart for a decade, only to arrive at the decision to give the throne of Spain to Louis' grandson. Of course, Carlos was less put off by the complexities of the Bourbon royal family when choosing his heir, and had reason to pause more so because he knew very well that placing any descendant of Louis XIV on the Spanish throne would provoke yet another European war. The strength and health of the Bourbons notwithstanding, this fact persuaded Carlos's advisers to look elsewhere. The Austrian Habsburg line was a reliable further option, embodied in the person of Leopold I, Holy Roman Emperor since the middle of the 17th century, as well as his heirs. But like Louis, these candidates were problematic, as it would make either the Habsburgs or the Bourbons too powerful, and upset the balance of power within Europe, leading to a war to stop the Spanish crown being taken, hence the name. Such a direct decision, to side with the enemy of France in Leopold I, who had just fought a war against Louis, don't forget, alongside the rest of Europe for the last decade or so, would have massively irked the French king and almost certainly ignited a further war and protest from France. So what to do then if there was going to be war either way? Well, Carlos learned a lesson from Carlsberg in this case, because he realised that there was always a plan C. His plan C was to choose someone neither side could object to. Not exactly an easy task, but he found it in an obscure child prince by the name of Joseph Ferdinand of the Electorate of Bavaria. Joseph Ferdinand was actually the grandson of Leopold, but it was on his wife's side, and technically, Carlos would have reasoned, he's part of the Bavarian Wittelsbach dynasty, which is in no way part of your family, Leopold, or of yours, Louis, so could everyone just get along now? In a last attempt of the Bourbon and Habsburg dynasties to appeal the decision, though, Leopold and Louis XIV's son, Louis XV, nominated their sons instead of themselves the Archduke Charles, and Philip, Duke of Anjou, respectively. But Carlos held firm. He became more and more drawn to the Bavarian prince, and the Habsburgs and Bourbons eventually relented and agreed to support his crowning once Carlos II himself had died. This choice of a successor was also preferred by England and the Netherlands, who moved to negotiate with France the Treaty of The Hague, or the First Partition Treaty, in 1698. This provided the two dissatisfied dynasties in Europe, Leopold's Austrian Habsburgs and Louis' Bourbons, with some consolation. This treaty would divide the other Spanish territories, like the Spanish Netherlands and the Italian possessions, between Austria and France, while guaranteeing that France and England would recognise Joseph Ferdinand as King of Spain once Don Carlos II of Spain had died. This time, though, the problem was less so European competition than Spanish indignation, Nobody had told Charles about this deal to split up his territories in Europe, and he was less than pleased. He protested at the plan to break up his empire just to satisfy some other greedy nations in Europe, and his objections were noted. The plans to divide his empire were scrapped, at least for now, 
but England and France still promised to recognise Ferdinand as the rightful heir. Perhaps concessions could be taken from Spain in the future, but for now, neither side wanted to force the issue, since forcing the issue meant war, and war was far down everyone's list of options by the late 1690s. Before we go any further, I think I should give you some detail on the states that will actually fight in this war. England is being referred to England in this case and not Britain because it wasn't until 1707 that England and Scotland were united as Britain. Another point that will soon become irrelevant is that England, in the 1690s, was in a union with the Netherlands. It will soon become irrelevant because in 1702 the monarch uniting the two states, King William III, died, causing both England and the Netherlands to regain their status as individual states. In When Diplomacy Fails, we've spent some time examining William III's rise to prominence, from his early days as a young stadtholder in Holland, resisting the aggression of Louis XIV, as we led eventually to his later power plays alongside his English wife Mary in the Glorious Revolution, which by this point we have not quite covered yet. In many ways, this war is the culmination of a number of ambitions, of family rivalries and of great or significant figures, who come to the end of their lives before, during or after the War of the Spanish Succession. For these reasons, as well as many others, this war is a critical one for understanding this era of European history. William III, a staple of European dealings since he burst onto the scene in 1668 with some power plays in Holland, would die in 1702 as previously mentioned. Leopold I, a Roman emperor and bugbear of Louis XIV also since the early 1670s, would pass on in 1705 as the war of the Spanish succession raged, while Louis XIV himself, the most permanent and prominent fixture of Europe by this point, died the year after the war's conclusion, in 1715, bringing to an end one of the most conflict-ridden periods of the continent's history. The Austria, or Holy Roman Empire, I refer to is another issue altogether, so I'll try to explain it as best as I can. I call it Austria for convenience, but also because the imperial court would have been based at Vienna, the capital of Austria. We've seen a great deal of the Holy Roman Empire since when Diplomacy Fells first opened its doors, but just to recap, the emperor is the authority figure over the majority of Central Europe, encompassing territory in Austria, Germany, Hungary and the Balkans. The best way to explain the complicated works of the empire is to compare it to the European Union today. Just like the European Union, the HRE had some unified revenue sources, but unlike the EU, it could declare war or make peace as one entity, so long as, and this is the crucial point, everyone got along with the emperor that made that declaration. This caveat is important because notable differences in status between the Holy Roman Empire's members existed. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. While one member of the Union, the Habsburg State, or Austria, stood above all the others in terms of power and seemed to have a subscription to the Imperial Crown, some members such as Brandenburg, Prussia, Bavaria, and Saxony were not as powerful, but still powerful enough to almost completely ignore the Emperor if they so desired. These bastions of German culture, history, and power remained all important since their further growth and identification as electors in the 1300s. Much had obviously changed since that time, with the Thirty Years' War arguably the high point of electors obeying the emperor or disobeying him. But with the Holy Roman Empire changing and operating according to its distinct set of rules and laws, it is difficult to define it or compare it to any modern-day system with any real accuracy, even though I just tried to do so with the European Union. The point is, as we've established elsewhere, the Holy Roman Empire was a strange beast, and it would remain so up until its dissolution under Napoleon a century later. The Netherlands and England were seen as the two maritime powers in Europe, and were now joined at the hip owing to William III's ties to both states, as Stadtholder of Holland and the other six provinces of the Netherlands, and King of England, Scotland and Ireland respectively. The history of the two states in the 17th century is one which occupied us for many previous when diplomacy fails us. Which is funny really because when I did this episode originally I came across William III and didn't really know all that much about who he was. As we know though, England and the Netherlands fought one another with an ever increasing frequency until it seemed that both accepted the similarities and shared interests they had. Undoubtedly, the insurmountable image of Louis XIV made uniting against a common foe easier, but such a uniform foreign policy should not hide the fact that the Dutch and British rarely saw eye to eye in the years before. Also, it was massively helped by the Glorious Revolution of 1688, which essentially forcibly fused the Dutch and English states together, and, in many ways, brought the English around to the Dutch way of looking at the continent. Anyway, there's probably less point in providing background to France, since in When Diplomacy Fails we've been somewhat obsessed with the French for many episodes. Since I want this war to serve as a standalone series, though, I think it's worth recapping on some things. France had been ruled for decades by the absolute monarch Louis XIV, also named the Sun King because Europe was said to revolve around him, a status he gained after fighting first the Dutch and then the rest of Europe in the 1670s. 
Louis France had been on a roll over the past few years, as his leadership established France as the most formidable nation in Europe. And while its navy could never defeat the combined power of England and Holland, its land armies were perhaps the best fighting force in all of Europe. In the Franco-Dutch War, as well as the War of the Grand Alliance, or War of the League of Augsburg as it's also known, French borders had expanded to incorporate fortress towns along the Rhine and along the French border with the Spanish Netherlands, while miniature seizures of river fortresses and the incorporation of old problem areas like Alsace-Lorraine, Franche-Comté, etc., propelled Louis XIV to the forefront of not just French, but European renown. France had never been so powerful, nor had it ever had so many resources under its command. Louis was going to need these impressive assets, because after exhausting his finances in the previous War of the Grand Alliance, he was making moves as delicately as he dared towards Spain. In spite of the strength of France, Louis knew that war was the last thing his kingdom needed, strained as it naturally was after many decades of war. That said, Louis's ambition meant that he naturally dreamed of the possibility of a Bourbon, France and Spain. The combined resources of both nations would surely smash his rivals and cement Catholic Bourbon supremacy in Europe. The fact that Carlos of Spain was not as willing to go ahead with such a union as Louis perhaps wanted to believe represented something of a dampener to the French king's plans, but there were numerous routes to the same destination, and Louis believed that if a pliable, distant relative of the Bourbon family would do, he would go about establishing one if a direct descendant of his own line could not be placed in Madrid. It should be added that at this point in history, Spain was not a European power in the same league as France, but it did hold European territory in Italy and the Low Countries, and overseas territory in South and Central America, which made it a highly relevant state nonetheless. Relevant is probably an understatement, and I don't want to put Spain in a box, but since we look at Spain now with modern eyes and observe its somewhat natural decline up to the 20th century, to contemporaries at the dawn of the 18th century, Spain remained a critical element of the European system, and the Spanish had made their presence felt in virtually all of the wars that Louis headed over the previous decades, this in spite of its decline and pathetic king. The point, as Louis by now accepted, was that even if Madrid was past its prime, Europe was still very much used to having Spain around, and its powers recognised the lineage and prestige of that great and far-flung empire, and how it could not be extinguished in the space of a generation. Carlos, or perhaps it would be more accurate to state Carlos's advisors, since it's hard to say how with it the Spanish king actually was, recognised that both the Habsburgs and the Bourbons would love to extend their influence into Spain. This was why a palpable sigh of relief had been heard when a pleasing compromise had been found, in the form of Joseph Ferdinand of Bavaria. However, while Carlos would not live to see the war, or he or his advisers feared, he would live to see the careful plans of compromise fall apart. Joseph Ferdinand, on whom the peace of Europe was now resting, was indecent enough to die of smallpox in 1699, meaning that Carlos would now surely have to choose between either the Habsburgs or the Bourbons. Neither was an ideal choice for Carlos, and either choice would surely provoke a war. All eyes were on Carlos to see what he would do next, and in simple terms, what he did next was choose the Bourbon candidate, in this case Philip, the Duke of Anjou, and grandson of Louis XIV. 
During the negotiations, it had become clear that the Pope favoured the French candidate, and Louis had sent large sums of money towards many influential Spanish clergymen to sweeten the deal and promote Philip's claim. There was the additional factor of many naturally occurring pro-French statesmen being present in Carlos's court, owing to French influence, proximity and dynastic ties. What motivated Carlos's court above all, though, was the apparent strength of the Bourbon line. And this was coupled with Carlos's stringent insistence on maintaining the domains of his forefathers in Europe, even at the expense of peace. Thus, history hands us the incredible image of Louis reacting to the news on the 4th of November 1700 that Carlos of Spain had finally passed on, and that in his will he had left everything that Spain owned to Philip of Anjou, remember, the second grandson of Louis XIV. This meant that if Louis elected to reject this enormous gift of all that Spain possessed, if he decided to hold his ambitions back and not incorporate the Spanish Empire into his own through his grandson, the son king would be left with the stark option of handing everything over to Archduke Charles of the Austrian Habsburg line. In simple terms, Carlos posed a kind of post-mortem ultimatum to Louis. Louis could either accept this dangerous gift and almost certainly plunge his country into another European war in the process, or he could choose peace and give every advantage to his greatest rivals. In his final act, it seems, Carlos had been as short-sighted and destructive in death as he had been lethargic and ineffectual in life. His last gift was to sentence Europe to yet another European war, because, let's be honest, how could someone like Louis XIV or any monarch really choose anything other than war at this stage. Saying that, though, Louis did dither for a little while. He realised above all that he had quite the dilemma on his hands. It had been Carlos's dying wish to have Louis's grandson sit on the throne of Spain, but France and England had already made plans to divide Spain diplomatically, which would avoid war and prevent the balance of power being upset in Europe. So Louis stalled for time, while his court looked like it would be making up his mind for him, as they argued France should adhere to the already signed Second Partition Treaty, instead of waging a needless war against Europe. Then the French foreign minister argued that everyone had forgotten about the Holy Roman Empire's objection to the Second Partition Treaty in the first place, and that if France tried to follow through and honour this agreement with England, Vienna would surely oppose the move by force, since many Habsburgs had all their eyes on Spain and wouldn't settle for what they had been given. Therefore, the French foreign minister argued, if we're going to be at war with Austria anyway, we may as well go ahead and go all the way and put all our chips in. The argument of the foreign minister successfully convinced Louis that adhering to the will of Carlos would only provoke the inevitable, and that England didn't look like it was going to intervene, distracted as it was with internal divisions. These internal divisions concerned those who opposed William III's policy in England, and who saw him as a foreign monarch trying to drag England into an unnecessary war when the Netherlands was viewed as quite capable of fighting the French by itself. So Louis was taking a pretty big gamble either way, but he saw the attraction of uniting the crowns of Spain and France, pooling their resources and striking his enemies. At the end of the day, it was making lemons out of lemonade. Louis knew he didn't have too much options, but at least the option of taking the throne of Spain promised greater results in future. History has largely brushed over the fact that war was verging on inevitable by the turn of the century. 
with so few candidates available to take the Spanish throne, and so many rivalries established which would ensure that at the very least somebody would oppose any potential candidate that Carlos elected to follow him, the situation was already mighty tricky, even before Carlos gave the proverbial finger to common sense and posed the impossible dilemma to Louis XIV of all people. Traditional narratives have it that Louis waged war against European sensibilities yet again because he coveted the Spanish throne for his grandson and because he wished to unite the two kingdoms against the rest of Europe. It remains a tempting and straightforward explanation, but to go with this line of reasoning is hugely unfair to Louis, even after all he's done. While it also sweeps under the rug the very real concerns and interests of the other European states at this time. Louis was in a catch-22 situation. If he withdrew, he would be outmaneuvered by his rivals, but if he went for it and accepted that war was coming either way, the image of Louis, the warmongering villain, would yet again be filtered throughout Europe, and as we know, history. Even if we discount the PR disaster that Louis accepted he was about to run headlong into, France in practical terms was greatly strained and racked financially after so many years of war. The fact that his court was willing to defy Louis at all demonstrates the exhaustion which France experienced and therefore it would be unrealistic to claim that Louis never considered the consequences before acting. Consequences were indeed considered, Louis just believed that in the grand scheme of things he didn't really have much of a choice. The historian M.A. Thompson in his article Louis XIV and the Origins of the War of the Spanish Succession summarised the situation effectively when he noted the following. Louis had been ready to make considerable sacrifices in order to secure peace in 1697. There is every reason to believe that he viewed the prospect of another great war with great apprehension. His professions of pacific intentions to other sovereigns cannot be taken at their face value, but his correspondence with his ambassador in Madrid from 1698 to 1700 and the London Embassy during the same period tells a tale that is all the more significant because these ambassadors were distinguished soldiers, whose opinion on the issue of war was not to be taken lightly. Both, moreover, like Louis's other trusted servants, were expected to speak their minds freely. They and their master were well aware that the question of the Spanish succession might lead to war. Whatever about consequences, Louis' gamble that the maritime powers would not be able to unite against him appeared to be working when it became clear that, in England at least, William couldn't get the support of England's movers and shakers behind him. William couldn't even persuade his own home country to oppose Louis, as Dutch statesmen feared the outcome of a war, again, in which the resources of France and Spain were sent against them while they fought alone. William reasoned he would need the English and Dutch working together if he was to properly defeat France once and for all and prevent Spain newly minting a Bourbon monarch. William's solution, at least for now, was to recognise Philip as Philip V, the King of Spain, in January 1701, which in itself is an interesting fact. But then Louis got stupid and decided to not tread all that lightly. He made every move as though he was trying to start a war, which in itself is a bit of a predictable fact. In February 1701, he had the French Parliament declare that Philip V of Spain was also the successor to the French throne, a move which went explicitly against Carlos's will, as it had stipulated that the two thrones never be unified. This, at least, was one thing that Carlos did that showed a modicum of sense. Louis's action here irked the English and Dutch, but the French king wasn't finished yet. 
He went on to order Philip's advisors to take orders from both Philip and Louis XIV of France. A move which basically meant that, if he wanted to, Louis could control Spain's most influential statesman and, by extension, the Spanish state. But it was the final act of Louis which finally won over the more difficult English to the idea of war. Philip was ordered to cut off all trade with both the Netherlands and England from any territory owned by Spain around the world. Forced into what they believed was their own dilemmas by the rash actions of another, England and the Netherlands now moved with real purpose to create something that could put Louis in his place and remove the threat from Spain once and for all. They found it in diplomacy. The Treaty of the Hague between England, the Dutch and the Holy Roman Emperor established a sense of unity in opposing Louis. It promised Vienna the Italian territories that the Austrians craved, while simultaneously establishing an alliance between the three peoples. Vienna was also encouraged to protect the Spanish Netherlands from French moves as a prerequisite for handing it control of the Italian territories. Interestingly, all parties did agree to recognise Philip as the King of Spain, since the crux of European concern was not so much that a Bourbon would sit on the Spanish throne, but that Louis would unite the two kingdoms, which was contrary to Cardos's will, and that he would force the Dutch and British out of the joint Franco-Spanish Atlantic markets. Neither London nor The Hague could afford to be cut out of such lucrative foreign trade networks established by Spain so many years ago, and upon which so much of their revenue depended. The nerves of Europe weren't helped by the fact that Louis launched what he upheld was a preemptive strike against the Dutch, and had already moved against various Dutch fortresses by August 1701. In response, the aforementioned Treaty of The Hague was signed by all members on the 7th of September 1701, establishing in international law what was already expected by many, that Europe's states would group together against Louis, to force the issue if necessary. Though in technical terms war had not yet broken out, it would have taken a miracle for Louis to have backed down now. The clock, it seemed, ticked towards yet another conflict. But Louis had not finished sucking at diplomacy just yet. As if anyone needed any more reasons to dislike France in England, Louis gave England an extra special one. Louis seemed determined to force England against him when he proclaimed James Francis Stuart, the son of James II, as the rightful king of England. Louis was already adhering to this provocative policy by upholding James II as the rightful king of Britain, but this was seen by the British public and its politicians as the last unacceptable slap in the face to England's power, prestige and dynasty. With this dangerous insult, William could finally call on England to aid him against France, and England could no longer ignore what Louis was doing. In September 1701, war looked like it was only a matter of time from breaking out in Europe. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.